From talkradio.nyc, welcome to At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and owner of David Thiergartner Interiors, right here in beautiful Manhattan. On tonight's show, your questions, my answers. My guest tonight is, well, it's me, I guess. Yes, only me. Well, you and me, of course, but it's me. And I'm going to try and answer all the questions we haven't had a chance to get to yet. And I also want to talk all about how questions are crucial to the design process, how the success of every interior design is dependent on robust and thoughtful questions. Oh, and let's not forget that questions are a wonderful tool for discovering what you like and what you dislike. Uh, We can also learn about project priorities and all the personal things you wouldn't even tell your therapist. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So I thought we could start tonight off a show about questions with a Jeopardy question. Boy, I sure wish that Alex Rebecca was here right now, but I'm going to give it a try and see if I can swing it, okay? So, in my best Alex Trebek voice, for $1,000, the best tool for creating a beautiful interior, the answer is, what are questions? Did I just win Double Jeopardy? I hope so. But questions are the mind spring for creativity. Questions to me are crucial and act as the pathway and the road to a better, more successful design project. On my way here to the show tonight, I was lucky enough to hear a little girl literally bombarding her dad with all sorts of questions. I couldn't stop listening and I had trouble keeping up with her, but... Her father didn't miss a beat and with tons of silly laughter and fun encouraged her to continue on. Successful interior design depends on robust questions. I believe one of the most important roles I play as an interior designer is exactly that, to create an environment where questions, where all kinds of questions are are welcome and encouraged. And I know that finding The right question to ask can be difficult, and one thing that people really don't like is not knowing the answer, but even more so, not knowing what questions to ask. And that is what makes questions so important, so powerful, because asking questions yield a better end product. And that is why I start asking questions at the very very beginning of every project. My responsibility, especially early on in the design process, is gathering information, all kinds of information. There is absolutely no substitute for asking the right question. And asking a good question creates active participation and leads the client to share their concepts and their concerns with you to teach you something about them, to teach you something about their families, what they want, what they need, and what you don't know about them. Certainly for me, they get my creative mental juices flowing and excited. And they should because interior design depends on thoughtful questions. And as a designer, I process hundreds of them every day. And I turn around and ask a hundred more. The true challenge of designing is asking the necessary questions in the first place. And the true excitement in designing is exploring the answers you receive and uncovering 
or discovering the next bit of detail, the next lead, knowing what that is can make all the difference in the world. I like to think of questions as a proverbial itch of curiosity that requires so much scratching and so much thought. And anyone who knows me knows I love to have questions whirl around in my head. So let's look at some of them. Let's start with some of the questions I like to ask at the beginning of a project. Remember, the best design questions look into the future. So here's the first one. How do you see yourself living here in this space? Let's say it again. How do you see yourself living here in this space? There's always a little bit of a pause after that one. As fundamental as it seems, clients haven't always thought that one through completely. But that's an important question. Here's a second one. How long do you anticipate living here? Well, that always seems to be a question about mortality because it places us directly into the future. But it's so crucial to understand the best path forward. Okay, here's an easier one. What rooms are the most important to you and why? And this is always a good one to ask. What are your priorities? Functionality? Durability? The ocean views? Entertaining? Comfort? More likely than not, all of the above. But the information lies in the way the, quest the question is answered. And then another tough one. How do you picture yourself here in five years? One of the wonderful benefits about asking some of these questions early on, there's a bit of self-discovery for the client. The client learns to work within the question. And once we understand that, we're off to the races. We're on our way to a great and fulfilling project. And after all those difficult questions are answered, we can get to the fun stuff. Things like style and color and kids' rooms and kitchens. So I like to ask some questions about style, too. Here's one. How does your personal style fit into your lifestyle? That's a really good question. How does your personal style fit into your lifestyle? Well, that takes a little bit of thinking. How about this? How or what inspires you the most and why? How about... How would your friends and family describe your style? What house or hotel did you last fall in love with? I love that one because we're always inspired when we go away on a trip or to a friend's house. And if I opened your closet right now, what would I find? Well, that says it all. That's a really important question. I also like to ask other personal questions that help define the entire home. I like to understand the family dynamic better. I ask questions that yield more of the entire family's need. So like this, balance for me, the importance of developing spaces for supporting individuality or creating spaces for family socialization. And then, I love to know what is idiosyncratic or what's an idiosyncratic nature of your family. Who doesn't want to know the answer to that one? So you can see, questions truly are the name of the game. And so then, what about the answers? Well, before I answer that, let me say this. Leaving the question open is sometimes as or more important than asking it in the first place. And since questions are pathways, they are constantly evolving and purposely left to be open and to be thought about. Then what about the answers? See, I think the answers are landmarks. They're static. They're unchanging. Once you have the answer, there's no need to keep searching, to keep discovering. In good design, the answer finds itself. It becomes, well, self-evident. And if we were playing another Jeopardy question right now, maybe Alex Trebek would answer, the place where dreams are made and friends and family make wonderful memories. I would press the buzzer right away and say, 
what is a beautiful home. When we come back, we're going to look through some questions from past episodes and see if we can answer them for you right now. This is At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, and we'll be back in two minutes. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Did you know you've been playing poker your whole life, even if you've never played a hand of cards? Hi, I'm Ellen Lakin, author of Poker Woman and host of the new show, Poker Divas. On the show, I talk about how poker strategy helps you win in business, life, and love. Tune in live every Thursday, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo! Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. My guest tonight, well, it's me. I was going to play another little game called Stump the Decorator, but it's not really fun to play by yourself, and I would have ended up winning anyway. So uh, let's get to your questions instead. Here's a question from our very first show. Paula Paula wrote in to ask, how did you get your start as an interior designer? And well, thank you, Paula, for the question. And it's a good one. It has a very long answer, though. So I'm going to try to cut it down a little bit and see if we can get to it. Certainly, as you listen to the show, you'll get little bits and pieces of my personal story and my career. But, you know, as all stories go, it started way back when in my parents' house in a little bedroom towards the back. And uh, with all of that, I'll say there were early signs of (laughs) great talent that might be described as a child prodigy. And I will give you an example of my early designs so you can decide for yourself. I designed my bedroom with two contrasting shades of green. Amazon dark green on one wall and a light pear green on the opposite wall. So you can already see the brilliant talent that was developing, right? On the main wall, the most important part of the whole focus of the room was a large wall mural beach scene with palm trees swaying in the wind and sandy beaches and crashing waves. And oh God, this is the best part. There were plenty and plenty of macrame everywhere. I did macrame curtains, macrame ties, macrame Light fixture, sconces on the wall. I added shells and beads and all kinds of things to it. So there was plenty of macrame. Oh, and bamboo rod and bamboo poles in the corner. So with all that said, I believe deep in my heart that I was always meant to be an interior designer. 
And after college, I had a wonderful early career with a major home furnishing store right here in Manhattan. I learned so much uh, from the experience. I had a wonderful position as a buyer, a product developer, and um, a merchandiser. I learned, you know, tremendous amounts outside of school about design, creating design, manufacturing design, and also about client relationships from that job. It was truly a launching off point. I got a lot of confidence doing that each and every day. I started my own business, David Thurgartner and Associates, in 1992, and my first job was in Philadelphia, and it has continued since then. So that's pretty much uh, how the career started, and uh, I'll try to fill in as we progress through all the different shows. Here's a question that we recorded. Congratulations on your first show. Is it always necessary to hire both an architect and an interior designer? Hey, thanks a lot for that question, too. I think it's probably one of the most commonly asked questions. Um, well, I think if you want to survive a gut renovation or if you're building a new home, I absolutely believe that you need both, both an architect and interior designer. Certainly, there is a lot of overlap between the two. But so much of it depends on what the project is, what the size of the project is, and what work is, is required. So in other words, if, if you're building a new house, of course you need an architect. But if you're renovating or gut renovating an apartment in New York City and you're moving walls or uh, changing plumbing locations, moving stairs or the height of a ceiling, anything that involves the footprint and, of course, if you need a DOB approval, then absolutely uh, you want to hire an architect. And, and architects, for the most part, um, love to work on the exterior, and sometimes they're not so crazy about working on the interior. They're not always interested in finishes and cabinetry or fixtures and fittings. And interior designers, although they have expertise in a lot of those same areas, um, and let me tell you, I personally like to get involved in, in the footprints of homes. Um, I like to talk about how we enter the house and where the central or main access is going to be and how the house flows as a, hall, as a whole. And recently, you know, just up the street here uh, a couple months ago, I changed the whole size of the master bedroom and the master bath. And I think even the architect would agree that it proved to be a, a successful change. But interior designers probably play the most effective role as a partner to the architect and as a good support for the client's during what can be a difficult and lengthy process. Other than that, a long list of items in my head would definitely depend on what an interior designer could do. Um, all the different floorings, you know, the main entrance flooring, the bathroom flooring, the kitchen flooring, the mudroom flooring, the main space throughout what, that, what the flooring is for there, fixtures and fittings, of course. Uh, we can't forget cabinetry and millwork, things like bookcases and paneling, wainscoting. How about any kind of ceiling detail or... Certainly lighting plans. I can't imagine building a new house or renovating an apartment without having an interior designer discuss the lighting plans. And that, of course, would depend on what the art placement is and the furniture layout. So uh, I just think it's a crucial, crucial thing to think about both players in that kind of room. You know, on a recent project, and more than just one, and my career has been based a little bit on this, I've been fortunate but we have used the architect for the outside or the exterior or the shell of the house. And I have been brought in to do the interior architecture um, and work directly with the client on those architectural details. So um, I think that's kind of a wonderful way to handle it because um, the interior is more of where my head is at and I can foresee or foretell a lot of the challenges and the problems that are going to be down the line. So if I was building a new house, just to wrap this up, or gut renovating an apartment, I would absolutely hire both. So there's your answer. 
Here's uh, a question from show 102. Here it is. What is what is the best way to hire an interior designer? Oh, okay. What is the best way to hire the best way to hire an interior designer is to get a referral from someone that you know, a friend of yours, uh, somebody at work, um, perhaps uh, the architect that you're working for or the general contractor. And remember that hiring an interior designer is kind of like going out on a date, right? Uh, maybe the first the first meeting could be a little awkward. Maybe not, but maybe it is. But why I feel like it's a date is because this is a long-term relationship, I mean, you know, if you're building a new house or gut running, renovating an apartment in Manhattan, we're talking two years easy, you know, sometimes three. My project in San Francisco is three. Um, even if you're just uh, decorating a new home, you're going to be with that person for nine months. And I've been fortunate enough to have some of the same clients for almost my whole career, certainly over 20 years as we go on. So they are long, long term relationship. So the best way to do that is to get a solid referral from one of your friends or somebody that you know. Um, the other thing I think to think about in hiring an interior designer is to, is to keep an open mind, right? Chances are you're not going to find the exact style that you're looking for in his or her portfolio. Um, you know, it's hard to duplicate somebody else's home. But what you want to do, and you wouldn't want it anyway, but what you want to do is look for quality. Use uh, how he uses material or, or what's important to you, like perhaps color. I like to look for consistency. Are all the rooms having the same level of attention and of quality and of determination? Um, details, are, I think, are really, really important. And, um, you know, I think one of the big questions or one of the things that people ask me a lot is that, well, my friend referred me to this interior designer, but I really don't like my friend's house. Well, that's tough, I think, because you need to know why you don't like your friend's house, because you don't like the color of your friend's house or the way the furniture looks, the style of the furniture or the way the layout looks. But if you think it's a good quality and you think they did a good job for your friend, and more than importantly, if your friend loves their house, then I think a good, solid interior designer can do the same for you. Okay, so let's see. Our next question comes from Frank B. in Atlanta, and, and he writes, oh, in parentheses, he says, <laughs> I'm a young designer just starting out. So here we go. Hey, David. What do you do when you don't know the answer? Okay, wow. Well, that's quite astute of you to ask. Hmm, I think the hardest thing to learn, I think the hardest thing to learn to say is, I don't know. You know, I don't know. As a young interior designer, I was always nervous to have any gaps in my knowledge or you know, my train of thought, right? We are so conditioned to having and providing quick and confident answers as a sign of our talent, as a sign of competence, um, certainly as a leader in our role as the interior designer. So we behave as though gaps in our knowledge should, should be hidden at all costs. Right, I used to believe that it was close to a death sentence. It pressed all my insecurity buttons and made me cautious. And depending on the situation, kept me from maybe stating my true opinion about something or allowing my I, my design ideas and and uh, concepts to be well expressed. You know, in the back of my head, I keep this Shakespeare uh, quote, and it's. Uh, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. And I think, I think that says it, says it all. Um, so, yeah, learning how to answer a question with I don't know was truly one of the most powerful tools I ever gave myself. And saying I don't know creates... Uh, an openness to explore more, more nuance, more subtlety, and more curiosity, and to discover a better answer. But we also must remember, too, that the design process 
takes a lot, a lot of thought and a lot of consideration. So it's okay not to always know, right? And then the last thing, the last thing I'm going to say is I think perhaps if you're, if, you know, unless you're saying it all the time, but I think perhaps it creates a better working relationship with your client because I believe there's an authenticity um, to that. You know, it's being honest. So don't worry. You will, you will say it less and less as you grow and mature as a designer. So I wish you all the best of luck. Uh, we recorded another question. Here's from Julie. Not sure what episode this is from, but uh, here we go. Hi, I'm fascinated by your conversation about the design process. Can you discuss your evolution as a designer? Oh, okay. Let's see if we can get to all of that. That's a big question over the past 30 years. But if you mean from the little boy that I was beachfront bedroom to the time I was a retail buyer and product developer and trendsetter merchandiser to my very first interior design job until now. Well, yeah, I would say <laughs> I've grown a lot and changed a lot. To quote somebody else like President Obama, I definitely have evolved. Well, <laughs> I most certainly have. And uh, what I remember most about my early days as an interior designer was nervousness. Um, every decision was nerve-wracking because there's a cost to each one of those decisions. And I remember questioning myself all the time. Um, and sometimes it prevented me with going with a big idea or a big statement. So I would settle for something more conventional. Um, hmm. I do believe, I, I guess, I do believe these years, all these years later, I, I made good decisions and worked well with my clients from the beginning because I still have some of those same early clients. So now, um, what can I say? I'm simply not that nervous anymore. I'm plain and simple. I'm just not nervous. So the confidence allows for much better design and much better decision making. Stylistically, I'll say what has changed, well... That is always fun to think about. My color palette is pretty much the same as it always has been. I am fond, I am, I should say, not fond of brilliant colors. I tend to like deeply toned colorations. I use jewel tones as a description of color. Personally, for me, I like spice palette. That uh, hasn't changed much over the year. What has changed the most is that I design a good amount of custom furniture now. I didn't do that before. And I'm much more knowledgeable about quality and durability and what is well-made and what is not and what I like and what I don't like. And, you know, I don't really second-guess myself on any of that anymore. So, you know, I have a roster of things or companies that I'm confident in and I know their product and great design comes from what you know. And uh, so I think that's how I'm going to go ahead and answer uh, that question. Oh, there's so much more here to get to. And we're going to get to that in uh, just a second. This is at home. And when we come back, we're going to take questions about budget and cost and all things money. And we'll be back with more questions. How much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> I do hope that doggies, I do hope that doggies, I do hope that doggies for sale. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Are you feeling unhappy with your body, shape, or size? 
ever feel out of control with food. I'm Elizabeth Tripp, your host of Nourish the Soul. Join me to uncover the root to these imbalances and discover a permanent solution to living a healthy life. Join us every Wednesday at my new time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. And we're back with questions about money, the cost of this and that, and how best to budget your interior design project. Hey, before we continue on with that, remember to send me your question, send your questions to me, David at DavidThiergartnerInteriors.com and put in the subject line at home questions and I'll try to answer all of them for you. Okay, so I can already hear people checking their bank accounts even before we begin. So let's start with this one well i guess i want to say before we do that each renovation has um you know i think each renovation needs to be balanced with the cost of your home versus the possible return you'll get on your renovation investment as an interior designer you know i can definitely help you with that by getting specific about individual cost and and uh, creating a budget that responds to those costs but you can also get advice from your real estate uh, broker, right? Because he knows the cost of your house when you bought it, what he anticipates the cost going up to, and if and what you put into your house and what it could end up having value. But you could also talk to your, you know, your personal financial manager. The other thing I like to stress before starting a renovation is that you're going to live you know, there in your house for a while, if not for a long while. So there's a percentage of your renovation investment that will depreciate as you enjoy your home and your surroundings. So it is certainly not all about the potential resale. With that said, let's take uh, some money questions. Hey, David, how much do you cost, or I guess I should say, uh, could you explain how interior designers charge for a project? <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, all right, well, so let's start with me. This is how I charge. Um, my fee is old school, and um, and I'm going to break it down for you. So I charge a design fee, um, and that, of course, uh, looks like it's a retainer, but here's the bad news. It's not. You, you, you don't get it back. So uh, it truly... <laughs> It truly is a design fee, and for all the reasons that you would imagine, um, um, to you know, you signing the contract, you're bringing me on board, and uh, you're paying me for the design and for uh, my expertise and my knowledge and my experience. So that's a fee. That's based on a sliding scale. It's also based on if it's new construction or if it's a decorating project. It's based on the estimate length of the project. You know, again, uh, I have projects that last three years. I have projects that last nine months. It also is based on square footage and things like how many bathrooms we're going to renovate and how detailed is the kitchen. So there's a big kind of sliding scale that determines what that initial design fee is. I break that up into three payments because I think it's important for you to see my work as we progress and you don't have to give it to me as you sign the contract. So that's that fee. And then for everything else that I specify as we go through the project, whether it's the sofa or the sink vanity or the bathroom floor material, there's what we call in my company, my company, um, we call it a service fee and that's 30% on top of those costs. So the idea of that, which is a very traditional design, interior design trade industry standard, is that in the old days, and certainly if it applies to today, is that anything that we bought came with a trade price, and we call it a net price, right? And usually that's anywhere between 30 and 40% 
less the retail or the street price. So the idea was that you were getting a professional, you were getting professional services like interior designer, and you're still paying what you would pay if you walked in to the showroom, walked in to the retailer by yourself. And that's how they balanced um, getting the best service for you at the best cost and also um, allowing uh, the interior designer to be compensated. So that's how that works. There's a lot of different systems out there. A lot of interior designers charge a flat fee. I've never quite been comfortable with that. And a lot of interior designers charge hourly. And I just have found in my business that doesn't work for me because I can be on the phone constantly all day long. I can be five minutes here, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there with this client, with that client, with this general contractor, with this provider. And I've never, ever been able to figure out how to keep track of that. And I don't even like that. That means my head is about money and not about design. And that doesn't work for me. For years, they've tried to create a system that we all could work under and they never have. So um, find a system that best works for you. But that's pretty much how interior design works. Here's our next question. Can you discuss the range of cost for a sofa? Example, why is one sofa better than another and what makes the cost difference so substantial? Uh, um, that's a hard question too um, because uh, like everything else in our world, there's hundreds of choices and hundreds of different price points along the way. So I think it's more important to think about a couple different things. You want to think about the structure of the sofa, the quality that it's built, how it's built, and the quality of that. Um, I think you want to think about the fabrication, and you want to think about the comfort, the foam, and all that makes up the inside and gut. So let's just go through that really quickly. Uh, inexpensive sofa, you should immediately pick it up, see how heavy it is. Uh, if you could pick it up by yourself, that sofa is going to last you a year or two at most, certainly if you have kids or a really big dog, that sofa is not going to last very long. The problem with that is that they're using less expensive wood for the frame, but more importantly, they're not joining the pieces together. And so all of a sudden, the corner's going to crack, or the, the main support along uh, what we call the skirt is going to crack, and the sofa is virtually no good, and there's really no way to replace that. Another good test is to... Uh, Take it by the arm on one side and shake it. And if it wobbles, then that sofa is virtually not a good sofa either. A good, well-made sofa is so heavy to lift up that it would be hard for one strong man to kind of lift up on his own. That sofa has a long uh, longevity and uh, is worth the money. The other thing to think about is fabric. Inexpensive sofas tend not to have really good fabric, so you always want to check on that. Certainly, you don't want a sofa that's going to rip or tear the first year or two. And then uh, a good sofa, a custom sofa like I would make, we have all ways of... of um, Checking on the durability of the fabric, there's things called rub tests. So, you know, when we're when we're purchasing fabric, we can look at the durability through a rub test, and you know, it has twenty thousand, thirty thousand rubs. Wow, that fabric could last a lifetime if need be. So that's another reason why the cost is. And then finally, what's inside? Uh, inexpensive sofas have foam. We like good things like a solid core foam in the center, wrapped in down, wrapped in feather. Uh, we like to use horse hair. We, we like all the things that just create this longevity and make sitting on this sofa or laying on this sofa one of the most important things. And we haven't even gotten to design of what the sofa is. But I think those, those are the criteria. I would think that uh, middle of the menu is always best on these decisions. And I still would do my structure test on all of that. Right. So, okay. So there's the sofa question. Let's do a question about kitchens. I've learned so much from the kitchen show, but could you discuss all the costs involved in renovating a typical New York City apartment kitchen? Yeah, well, that's a tough one to do on the radio too, but we're going to try. So a typical New York City apartment can be a little thing, um, you know, maybe eight by eight feet square, or I think more typically it would be like my kitchen, which is about 12 feet wide by about 16 feet long. Um, and I think that's where probably I would deal with more um, 
in in sort of that medium size to larger kitchens. But besides the square footage of it, let's just talk about what costs are involved, right? So you have professional fees, meaning you either have an interior designer or an architect. You have demolition. You have a plumber, an electrician. You have a drywaller. You might be replacing the windows. Then you have millwork like your cabinetry. You have countertop. You have new appliances, right? So that's just the beginning of it. And, the, and you have new flooring, perhaps, yeah? So then all of that is a cost. And then all of those people have to come back because the electrician is coming back to install the lighting. The plumber is coming back to install the sink and the faucet and the dishwasher and the refrigerator. The cabinetry that you purchased now has to be installed by somebody. The countertop has to be templated and installed by somebody. Right. So the appliances are about the only thing I think that shows up one time. Right. You order it and they, they kind of show up. You have the installation. And through all of that, you have a contractor who's dealing and working with it. So there are just some of those costs. The same is true pretty much for bathrooms, too. So now you didn't ask me about that, but you asked me about cost. So I'm going to try to see how I can figure that out for you. So um, I got three projects right here in this neighborhood. Um, all of them are redoing their kitchens. I would say the one kitchen cabinetry cost was $35,000. There's another one that's $60,000. It's a little bit bigger and a little on the more um, elegant side. And then I did a custom kitchen out of Walnut. That was about $45,000. So I'm just talking about the cabinetry now, right? I think in all those cases, the countertop, that's the next big cost, is about 15 grand, let's say 10 to 20 grand, depending on the size or the, uh, the amount of linear feet that you have for the countertop. The appliances seem to be running around 15 to 20, $25,000. That depends if you're using a Wolf stove or a Sub-Zero refrigerator versus maybe like a Liebherr or a, a different kind of a, a range, but still 15 to 20. Is anybody adding this up as we go? I'm not. You have uh, you have lighting and all of that. So you're into the $100,000, if not more, range. Um, again, I think you can get all that money back when you resell and you get the joy of, of living with it um, the whole time. Um, okay. Uh, I'm not even sure we have a chance to do another question right here. Um I'm just looking real quick. Let's let's just go. We'll go to our final segment. And um, I got to tell you, that was a lot of fun. It was also kind of hard to do so quickly. But um, I'm so glad you were able to get those questions answered. And certainly, I hope it helps. I know how frustrating it can be to kind of find the right answer and to understand the cost and situation in front of you. So remember... Remember, when you're discussing cost and budgets together as a family and stuff, no screaming, no yelling aloud, and don't forget to tell the truth. You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you feeling unhappy with your body, shape, or size? Ever feel out of control with food? I'm Elizabeth Tripp, your host of Nourish the Soul. Join me to uncover the root to these imbalances and discover a permanent solution to living a healthy life. Join us every Wednesday at my new time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com So I thought it would be fun in our game show theme to do a lightning round and see how many questions we can answer in this last segment. So here we go. David, what is your favorite color? Okay. Well, personally, my favorite color is green. I'm a huge chartreuse green fan. Uh, I know that sounds weird and it is a little weird, but I love that color for some reason. I have my whole life and I used to call it time, but uh, now I call it chartreuse. Uh, maybe my French is getting better. Anyway, I have always loved that. I love olive green too, just so we know. And I use a lot of olive green with black uh, accents. I love black furniture against olive green wallpaper. I love black trim against olive green uh, fabrication. Uh, I have a an ebony chair with a, an olive uh, cushion on it. So personally, those are my favorite colors. And professionally, my uh, I tend not to use those colors. Most people don't respond to those colors very well. But uh, um, my favorite colors are blue uh, for um, most of my clients. And I love two colors from Farrell and Ball very, very much. One is called Skylight, which is spectacular in a bedroom and the other one is called stone blue that works so beautifully in um, a family room or even in a it can be a gorgeous powder room as well okay so here's the next question uh, that i that wasn't a lightning round at all i spent an hour just answering the color question here we go what's your best choice for countertop okay i'm a huge marble fan i hate granite i do not like the spots just so we know i say that of course and there's a granite called absolute granite which is an ebony granite and then i'll get really specific with you and tell you that it only can be honed it can't be polished because i think it's ugly polish so how about that the color or the marble quality that i like is that french pastry or bakery marble it's carrera it's called carrera and that's that white solid ground with the gray and the black sort of small veins to it that's the best way you can hone it you can polish it like in a French bakery, it can last 100 years and it only gets better the longer that you use it. Okay, here's the next one. I can't decide on what finishes I want on my kitchen hard or what my kitchen hardware. Well, let me try that again. I can't decide on what finish I want my kitchen hardware to be. Is there any kind of new trends that I should be aware of? Well, hmm, always, but um, here's what I do. I tend to use bronze because bronze to me is classic it doesn't denote a style. It doesn't denote a period. It just is what I think cabinet hardware should look at, uh, should look like. Um, I think brass is beautiful, and I do use brass, but brass is fashionable and more decorative. So if that's the approach that you want to go through, brass, of course, would be good for that as well. But probably the best one overall is satin nickel. It will last you a lifetime. It doesn't make a big statement. It looks a little bit like... Uh, in a kitchen, for instance, it looks like your refrigerator front or your your sink, and so everything is kind of melting together. And I will say before we leave this, you can mix metal finishes. People think that you can't, and that's an old wise tale. So go ahead and just have fun with um, 
the metal finish that you choose. Okay, here's the next one. Um, in your wallpaper show last week, you sound like you use murals all the time. Why is that? Oh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I do, and then, of course, I don't, because murals can be expensive. But I absolutely love the expression of murals. Um, I think they are absolutely spectacular, and certainly if you do not have a good art collection, one of the reasons, murals work so well. So that's that's one of the reasons. They're expensive, so they're not for everybody. Um, recently, I've been using this handmade, what I call pulp paper, um, and it's just outstanding, and it's so flexible, and it gives me so many... Uh, different kind of ways of treating a space or a room. I used it recently on just cabinet door fronts. Um, it's a little bit like a cutout, right? It's, um, you know, like lace would be, though it's not that delicate, but um, it's solid and open, so positive and negative effect on it. So it really, really works well. I think if you were listening to the wallpaper episode, uh, I'm a crazy wallpaper fan, so I think all, all wallpaper is good. So there's that. Okay, uh... So here's one. Art is pretty new to me. Does art have to be expensive or important? Well, of course not. But I think more importantly, instead of what the art is, because the art's only good, the art's only meaningful, and the art is only important if you like it, right? So I'm not sure uh, how to answer it other than that. But here's a couple tricks. One is if you're finding art in a flea market or if you have art from your family or any of that, the best thing to do when none of it is standing out on its own is to put it in collections, right? Put three or four or five pieces together. It always works. It's so much better than a picture here, a picture there, a picture here, right? And then I'll tell you a little bit more about that. In the Hamptons just recently, I did about a, I don't know, 30, 40 foot hallway, maybe longer of about I don't know, over a hundred different family pictures. And this is what we did. We um, made sure that all the qualities were the same. They were all black and white and they were all, they were all nice quality black and whites. They were clear. So if it was an old picture from, uh, you know, from an earlier generation, we had it restored so that all of them had that same sort of stable, wonderful, clear black and white look. We put them all in the same frame. Well, not in the same frame, but in the same finish frame. So in this case, we use gold leaf frames throughout. And then the fun thing that we did in our collection is that we grouped them in stories. So the first group was all the married pictures, you know, or the, the wedding day pictures of the bride and the groom or the bride and the groom with their family. So that was all together on wall walls. I think there was maybe 16, 17 of just the bride and or the bride and groom all together. And then we did uh, pictures of just babies, right? All the like baby pictures. So we did another group of that. That was bigger, of course. And then we did a picture of grandma and grandpa with all of their kids around them. And then we did a grouping of all the silly, all the, you know, the silly kid pictures, you know, the somersaults and the tongue sticking out. And then we did another group of just beautiful family pictures, you know, mom and dad and and the kids. And what made it so successful was instead of just walking down a hallway with a bunch of, you know, family pictures around, all of a sudden there was all these stories to look at. And they had so much more meaning and they were so much more important grouped in that way. And um, I think what really makes it successful is that the kids of this family, they bring their friends in and they walk down the hallway together and they point out where their mom was when she graduated from high school or what their grandma and grandpa looked like. And boy, to see that interaction is absolutely worth it all. So that that's just a story about how, I mean, family pictures are important. I don't mean to say that, but how almost anything can work well if you group it and you kind of put them all in the same frame. So that's my story about that. Um here we go. Oh, very interested to know your favorite design project. Can you describe it for me? Uh, okay, it's a little hard in the lightning round to do that, but here we go really quick. Um, well, you know, I think it's like picking your favorite child. So I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that that's fair. But I will tell you something recently that is very meaningful to me and I think meaningful to my client. It's a client of mine that I've done a couple different apartments with her and she finally moved from her beautiful terrace, large um, four or five bedroom apartment on Madison Avenue near Central Park and um, 
or the sorry, I wanted to say the Cooper Hewitt Museum to a uh, probably I think a better uh, smaller apartment in the Flatiron District, and um, we didn't keep any of her existing furniture from Madison Avenue because the gentleman who bought the apartment bought all the furniture from her, which is always a good testament to the interior designer and the client, I think. But so we had a chance to start again and we had so much fun and it was so wonderful to to have this new journey uh, with her and to be responsible, uh, to be her partner in creating her new life downtown in a wonderful neighborhood. Um, and we did really just um, totally different kind of concepts. We, we had tangerine sofas and we had this brightly colored paisley velvet print on the chairs and we had incredible wallpaper. We had a wallpaper that was... Uh, the Metropolitan Opera House boxes, all in black and white in the powder room. We just had so much fun. Um, the bedroom was sort of a, a pink and gray and had wonderful accents to it. And she had this incredible, talking about art, she had this incredible art collection that we just made this huge gallery presentation across the whole living room, dining room wall of all of her most favorite things. And it worked out really, really well. So let's see if I can take one more question. Okay. Oh, I'll take this question. You speak a lot about your grandmother's house. Um, what made such an impression on you? Oh, that's such a nice question. Thank you for paying attention. Well, you're right. I do. And I think about it a lot. My overall impression with that is that my grandmother was deliberate in her design. It was formal, yet it was carefully arranged. It had beautiful pieces of china and wonderful porcelain uh, Lance, but as kids, we were always welcome and we were always comfortable there. And I think about it to this day that you can have both. So thank you all for your wonderful questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. We love your questions. And so send as many questions as you want to David at David com. Just put in the subject line for me at home questions and I would appreciate it. I want to thank everybody here at talkradio.com, Schoolhouse Number 6 Productions. I couldn't do it without you and I wouldn't want to try. Ben Keegan from my music and remember to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at home with DTI. Take a look at my website, David Thiergartner Interiors and join us next week as we speak to a magnificent art curator, Paul Estaño and uh, it's going to be an exciting show. I'm excited about it. Remember to stay tuned for the Noreen Sumter show beyond potential live life your way and until next week on the radio remember the best designs for your life start at home no more questions please no more tests comes the day you say what for please no more. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi. I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Did you know you've been playing poker your whole life, even if you've never played a hand of cards? 
Hi, I'm Ellen Lakend, author of Poker Woman and host of the new show, Poker Divas. On the show, I talk about how poker strategy helps you win in business, life, and love. Tune in live every Thursday, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 